Hello, welcome to the latest on Lightboard Transition. I'm Laura Dalvidia and this is PwC's podcast series about the challenges and opportunities when transitioning away from LIBOR. We're soon saying our final goodbyes to the five LIBOR currencies and 35 tenors. Instead of LIBORs, we are seeing an increasing amount of products indexing risk-free reference rates, term rate variations, and in the USD market, also so-called credit-sensitive rates. By now, it's clear that the process of moving from LIBORs to alternative rates has been a lot to take in, even for the biggest, most knowledgeable market participants. And it's most definitely not over yet. And that's why we've chosen the topic of the day, LIBOR replacement rates, what they are and why firms may choose to use one or the other. Joining me today in our virtual studio are two PwC partners, Sergey Volkov and Justin Keen. Sergey is our Lightboard Transition Lead in APAC, while Justin co-leads our Lightboard Transition efforts in North America. Both are working with our banking and capital market clients, supporting their Lightboard Transition programs. Good morning, good evening. Many thanks for joining me today. JK, you know better than most how tricky this transition has been for the market participants. It's not just the case of replacing an old LIBOR reference in products with a new alternative, is it? There are many fundamental differences and use case restrictions between the rates, which both the sell side and buy side have had to consider, and of course, several different rate options. So it would be great to start with a quick recap of the key rate types everyone involved needs to understand. Thanks, Laura, and uh, great to be here with you today. So firstly, given the time available, it's worth just specifying we're talking about new transactions only. I think in terms of existing loans and products that need to transition away from uh, LIBOR references on existing contract terms, there are a bunch of legal, legal and legislative factors that are country specific and contract specific. We're also only going to be talking about the five currencies that have uh, the upcoming and defined cessation dates, sterling, euro, Swiss franc, Japanese yen, and US dollar. So with that context, I would say generally we're seeing new transactions fall into one of three buckets in terms of the rates that they're using. Firstly, transactions that are directly indexed to the overnight rates recommended by the country working groups. So, for example, that would be derivatives, loans or bonds indexed to Sonia or SOFA and using some kind of compounding or averaging uh, as part of that process so that the instruments can play floating rates less frequently than daily. So paying out monthly or quarterly, for example, but still referencing that overnight rate. Secondly, we're seeing transactions in certain areas indexed to term versions of the overnight rates. So the rates are derived from derivative transactions indexed to the overnight version rather than directly calculated. The advantage here is that firstly, the rates are known at the start of the accrual period. And secondly, the tenor of your reference rate and the tenor of your coupon period match. So you can reference the term rate directly. And then lastly, in some jurisdictions, we're also seeing some transactions in alternative reference rate. Uh, for example, in the US, in credit-sensitive rates. So these also have the advantage they're typically known at the start of the period and match the tenor of the index and the coupon period, but more on these later. Thanks, JK. Um, as you mentioned, we'll talk more about the different country variations a little later in the podcast. 
But term rates in particular have gained a lot of attention. One of the biggest news over the summer was the US ARC's formal recommendation of term SOFA. I guess you could say that term rates are the most familiar option for light bulb replacement. Do you agree, Sergey? Laura, I do agree. Um, I think, well, we all know LIBOR is a term rate. We have overnight LIBOR as well as LIBOR for one week, one month, two months, three months, six months, and 12 months. One of the main criticisms for rates replacing LIBOR, these RFRs, is that they are overnight rates, meaning you have to do something to them to derive a term rate. So in many cases, you'll be doing average or compound average to really create a term rate like LIBOR. And some of these transformations require calculations that can be operationally complex. And um, in, in, some, in some cases, it's basically a showstopper for firms. Uh, now, term rates like term SOFR for US dollar, term SONIA for sterling, and uh, TORF for Japanese yen are term rates that are published by administrator, by an administrator for one month, three months, six months. So they behave very similar to LIBOR in that we can just reference and look them up and see them published. There are differences, however, uh, some nuanced differences between term RFRs and LIBOR. Uh, of course, one is uh, not all LIBOR settings are available in term RFRs. Um, the, the other key difference is conceptual. So if we think about term LIBOR or LIBOR, it's effectively a rate at which banks will borrow from one another over term. So it's effectively a future cost of funding or cost of funding from now whereas term RFRs are effectively uh, derived from uh, derivatives um, referencing overnight rates, and they really represent market expectations of future overnight rates. So I guess that, that's a conceptual difference. If you then compare term rates with the recommended RFRs and the LIBOR soon gone, um, what do you see are the key upsides and downsides? I know you mentioned a few of them already. In the UK, for instance, regulators have been quite clear that the use of term rates should be get minimal, but that's not necessarily the case everywhere, is it? No, that's exactly right. So, of course, the upsides we did just talk about. So the upsides is you get to reference a term rate, like a three-month term SOFR, uh, similar to the way you currently reference three-month LIBOR. Um, so to the extent um, uh, your local regulator or to the extent it's it's otherwise allowed in your jurisdiction, you, you're able to uh, reference um, uh, term RFR similar to the way you're using LIBOR. Um, and, and operationally, it's much less complex to do so. Um, the downsides, of course, is uh, are all of these restrictions. As, as you mentioned, Laura, the UK regulator is probably the most restrictive in terms of use cases for term SONIA. Uh, we're only really allowed to use term SONIA for things like trade finance and Islamic finance and a handful of other use cases, which are very specific. And uh, there's a lot of very heavy restrictions on the use of term SONIA for derivatives. Whereas if we look across uh, to the US, uh, term SOFR, there are still restrictions in place. However, those restrictions um, still allow us to reference term SOFR for um, a fairly wide variety of cash products like loans and bonds and uh, in, in some cases certain derivatives for end users uh, it, you know potentially it will be permitted um, whereas um, and, and in Japan likewise 
we will be able to uh, use Tor for many cash instruments and uh, perhaps to a lesser degree certain derivatives, although of course um, the expectation is that most derivatives will reference the overnight reference rates. So um, uh, challenges, I would say, you know, if you're doing a loan, you may not always be able to easily hedge it under the term SOFR or term, term uh, reference rates. Um, so that, that will present a challenge. But of course, there's certain upsides. That was an excellent summary. Many of us haven't done much real traveling recently, but let's take a virtual trip around the five LIBOR currency areas. Starting from Europe, JK, what's the status of different rates in the UK, Switzerland and the EU? I think in the UK, it's, it's actually been pretty clear from the UK uh, RFR working group and the official sector, well, the expectation is on direction of travel. And there's there's been really good progress there. So we're seeing most of the activity now using Sonia overnight rates, both compound in arrears and simple average. Uh, with the lending market, you've had the mandate from the end of March of 2021 that there should be no new LIBOR loans. And you're also seeing derivatives be the vast majority of the market now um, as of August of uh, 2021. There's some term Sonia take up, but as Sergey mentioned, that's typically limited to a couple of specific sectors that really need, uh, need that term rate. In the Swiss market, again, it's pretty clear the transactions are being executed under Saron directly, either compound in arrears or simple average. And again, clarity early on from the national working group and official sector that there will not be a term Saron. Uh, given the lack of uh, depth in the derivatives market, has been helpful in removing uncertainty. I think when you get to the euro market, there's a slight difference as most of the cash transactions, the so loans and bonds, reference Euribor rather than Euro LIBOR, which is the one that's uh, ceasing publication at the end of this year. So we haven't seen as much migration onto the ESTA overnight rate. Uh, we're seeing that more explicit transaction from the EONIA, the existing overnight rate, to ESTA. Uh, there is still a risk that Euribor will cease in the midterm, which will then bring additional challenges to the European market and does re-emphasize the need to ensure that in all contracts, robust fallback language really should be in place in the event of benchmark cessation, uh, something that's uh, clearly a much more uh, realized issue that, uh, than we've seen in the past. But the one other thing to mention is it's also going to be interesting how things move constructively in the markets in the future. Um, certainly, as I speak to uh, players in other jurisdictions, if you know the major currencies like sterling and dollar and, and so on move to overnight rates, will that constructively shift liquidity into overnight rates in the cross-currency market? And therefore, what implications could that have for those institutions that <clears throat> may be on other term rates at the moment, uh, but could shift at some point in the future? Thanks, JK. Next up, Japan. Sergey, what's happening on your side and how is the market responding over there? So, so in Japan, we have a true multi-rate environment. Of course, we have uh, the Japanese yen LIBOR, which is in fact going away. Uh, we also have TIBOR, which is a, our local IBOR, our local IBOR term rate, uh, which is staying at least for a while. Uh, we also have our new overnight RFR called TONAR, uh, and we have a term RFR called TORF. So this, of course, allows financial institutions and their customers a lot of choice with respect to which is the right benchmark for which product, which is, of course, uh, uh, a huge benefit uh, to, to the market. The, the, the downside, of course, is that this choice does create some complexity 
and it's it's quite important for firms to you know uh, select the appropriate benchmark for their product to think through how do you price it which conventions you use uh, create create contracts and of course the, the the one of the challenges there is also the client education client outreach client negotiations uh, given that uh, there's so many choices it's important to explain what those choices are and of course you know clients on the, on the client side are, are seeing and hearing from their banks uh, offering different rates different options and of course that creates the need for more education more discussion around what that means and and, and why the differences are there um, and of course looking just across Asia including Japan we have a lot of US dollar LIBOR and uh, firms uh, similarly continue to ask what is there that's going to replace US dollar LIBOR just given that it's not a simple answer as maybe we thought a year or two ago. Thanks. You just mentioned the US. JK, back to you on the status and use cases there. It's been a slightly more complex journey, hasn't it? Yeah, maybe if it helps, let's start where there is some clarity, more clarity. Uh, derivatives markets, the vast majority of the volume uh, will be an overnight sofa. We've been seeing that build over the last few years. Uh, instruments that are cleared or under ISDAs will automatically shift to compound in arrears SOFA uh, after June of 2023 when US dollar LIBOR in the major uh, tenor basis ceases publication. And the SOFA First initiative that kicked off in uh, the end of July of 21 is, is really starting to accelerate volumes. Uh, secondly, I would say there are certain of the cash markets that have clearly landed. Floating rate notes are substantially all SOFA-based, uh, typically compound in arrears. And we haven't really seen LIBOR notes more than a small minority of the market over the last year based on what we've been, uh, what we've been tracking. Thirdly, you've got retail products, which in certain states in the US have legislative prohibitions on using an in arrears rate. Um, so for example, floating rate mortgages uh, are going to be using SOFA compound in advance as our student loans in a, in a slightly different setup. Um, there's a chance these may move to terms over in time, but for right now, uh, there's clear agency support for doing those on a compound and advanced basis. And then lastly, with respect to commercial lending markets, that's one we're expecting to see a lot more activity as we move into the, uh, the last quarter of 2021 and expecting those to be largely based on SOFA. Um, with a minority of the market leveraging other rates, such as some of the credit-sensitive rates that have been emerging. I think you're going to see a mix of uses in here, um, some based on daily simple SOFA, as that's the operational capabilities that people have been focused in on, with the approval or the endorsement of term SOFA, uh, given the operational ease of adoption, uh, you're going to see some more of that as well. And then potentially uh, some that are using uh, loans or cash instruments with swaps uh, hedging them may end up using compound in arrears. So you've got better alignment between uh, the cash instrument and the uh, and the most liquid derivatives markets for the hedging purposes. What about the political hot potato, the US dollar credit sensitive rates? Recently in the UK, the FCA noted that they'd be concerned about significant use of the rates in the UK markets and will require UK regulated firms planning to use CSRs in the UK to clear the use with the FCA before going ahead. What's the rationale and, and do you think that's a fair requirement? Well, maybe not gonna answer the question around do I think it's fair or not. That's always a bit uh, interesting in discussions with the regulators. 
Look, I, I think that there's a clear rationale behind it, right? If, if you look at one of the key requirements that came out post the financial crisis, it was anchoring reference rates that are going to be widely used to be as closely possible based on real transactions. Um, <clears throat> and so if you think about uh, SOFA in and of itself, it's backed by, on average, a trillion dollars a day uh, of repo transactions, uh, very readily observable, uh, a deep and liquid market, and one that's been demonstrably there through times of stress. When you come to the uh, some of the term rates or some of the credit sensitive rates, the depth of the markets behind them uh, may not be as robust. Uh, they may not be uh, as reliable during times of economic stress. And so there are some, con some concerns there around that. But maybe as we think about the credit sensitive rates or CSRs, it's worth breaking down what's behind the desire for those into two components uh, based on what we've been hearing, talking to customers and, and, uh, and the financial sector over the last couple of years. Firstly, there was an attraction around it for those that wanted a forward looking term rate for operational reasons. So much easier to deal with a rate like LIBOR that you know at the start of the period uh, with a reset tenor that matches when you pay interest um, and you know that that gave you some good operational advantages. And then secondly, those that are concerned around the funding costs. So for example, a bank treasury function. Uh, and they also wanted a rate that would see uh, bank funding costs be partially offset at least uh, in term loans and commitments and revolvers so that as funding costs move, so do the interest rate on the underlying loan. So if you're in that first group, um, and you just wanted that term rate, you do have other options, right? In that you've got SOFA compound in advance, which as I mentioned, the mortgage and student loan industry has been using, and you now have term SOFA. Um, and we, we've got an ARC in the endorsed term SOFA rate and an acknowledgement that that can be used in most commercial lending transactions. For the second group that want those bank funding costs partially offset, uh, there's still a desire to see those rates be used. Um, and in some cases balanced by recognition of the criticisms that the official sector has levied on those rates. So maybe rather than <clears throat> saying whether or not one should use them, I think we've we've tended to talk with our clients around for those that you want to use credit sensitive rates and transactions, there's probably three key aspects to address. Um, firstly, that one would have a robust and well-documented governance process over determining which rates an institution is going to permit for which types of transactions, for which types of customers, and why are those rates suitable for the institution itself? Uh, how might you risk manage and hedge them? What would be the costs around that? Um, <clears throat> is that something that you're gonna offer or, or is it something that you will be willing to, to participate in but wouldn't be a primary offering? Secondly, to address some of those concerns around reliability of rates, having clear fallbacks in place so that if those rates fail to be published or fail to be reliable uh, or don't end up surviving the uh, the evolution of, uh, of these new rates as we go through the next few years, there's a pre-planned fallback clearly articulated. And then thirdly, uh, and maybe most importantly, ensuring there's clear documentation uh, of the discussions with customers and counterparties as to the risks that are inherent in the rates including how they're expected to behave in different economic cycles to the one we're in at the moment. And if a key objective of credit sensitive rates is really to transfer 
the volatility risk in bank funding costs from the bank sector uh, to Main Street, ensuring that borrowers really understand those risks um, and being able to demonstrate that uh, you've communicated that, people have understood it, is really going to be key to managing the conduct risk and the customer experience. Thank you both for your time today. Before I let you go, considering your extensive first-hand experience with the transition, do you have any concerns about the progress, anything that keeps you awake at night? I, I would say we've talked a lot about new transactions. Um, one of the key things is obviously still those transactions that were existing today, indexed LIBOR, that don't get proactively modified before the end of the year. Um, the operational processes uh, that need to get and put in place to shift large numbers of contracts onto new reference rates at one time at the end of this year. So I think the operational challenges around that are still formidable. Um, so that that's probably one of the key things that keeps me uh, keeps me concerned about what's going to happen next. Sergey? Yeah, Justin, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think um, we have effectively four months until. Uh, the Japanese yen, sterling, LIBOR, Japanese yen, LIBOR, Euro, LIBOR, uh, Swiss, LIBOR, Ionia, these rates discontinue or become not representative. And there's still a lot of work to do. Um, not everyone has stopped using some of these rates in transactions, which is, uh, you know, ha has a degree of risk. Um, firms have not been able to engage with all of their clients on how to transition from these rates. And some firms do not necessarily have a game plan that they've communicated of how they plan to transact away from U.S. dollar LIBOR starting next year, uh, as, as most firms are supposed to stop using U.S. dollar LIBOR new transactions, uh, with, with, with some exceptions for hedging and risk management purposes. So certainly a lot more work to do. And, and I guess what keeps me up at night is that we only have four months left to this key deadline. Indeed. Um, many thanks again. A great insights as always on this podcast. And uh, thank you to our listeners as well. Please get in touch if you have any questions. You can also sign up to our semi-monthly market update newsletter, which covers the latest developments globally. And please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes as well. But for now, that's all from me. Thank you, everyone.